One of the devil's lies is that you have to work your way back to God. Whether it's a hurt or a sorrow or a sin or a failure. Well, now you know of, you really messed up. And you've got to work your way back to God. It'll take you a long time. You've just got to repent and do this and do that and do this. You've got to work your way back to God. That's a lie. How did you come to God for salvation? You came through the blood of Jesus. That's how you came. You came through the blood of Christ. And I never will forget what Roy Hesse and that great man of God said. When you sin, well, there are consequences. But you don't have to work your way back because you get back the same way you got saved. And that's through the blood of Christ. And that's a quick way back. The moment you repent, the moment you turn from that sin, God restores you. You're forgiven. The blood of Christ has cleansed you. Now you may have to clean up some messes or some consequences. But that has nothing to do with sin. You do not work your way back to God in anything. You come back the only way you can. And that is through the precious blood of Christ. So let's remember that. And God welcomes you on the basis of the perfect sacrifice of his son. A couple of things. One, next Sunday is going to be a great day. We're going to invade our community with our blessing bags. Popcorn, you got to put it in the microwave. Candy, track, CD, all kind of good stuff. And we're going to say to the people as we knock on their door, you know, we're members of Luke 418 Fellowship, and we're so glad to be a part of your community. And we just want you to know we love you. And this Thanksgiving season, we just want to bless you. And just let you know, any way we can pray for you, any way we can help you, we, we, we want to. We want to be your good neighbors and your good friends because we love you with the love of God. So I hope you'll just take it seriously. Take you about an hour or so, maybe just to, and you know, we're going in the spirit of love to bless people. Now, we got to assemble these bags Wednesday night after prayer meeting, uh, Bible study. So we're going to need a bunch of you. We've got maybe about 500 we're going to assemble. So if you'd help us Wednesday night after uh, uh, Bible study, that would be great. And then we'll be prepared to go next Sunday. I'm, I'm just so thankful. You know, I want you to know I appreciate so much you praying for my wife. And praise God, she's able to be back today. And I'm just so glad. I'm praising the Lord. You know, we've had such an intense battle with pain for the last seven weeks, eight weeks. And we're not over that battle yet. We're still in the battle. But I thank God for her courage and her desire to be in the house of God. And thank you for your cards and all your prayers. I'm so grateful. And she is. Uh, we have so many others in our church that are going through very difficult times right now. Critically ill. I would urge you to pray for Gerald Criswell, who is critically ill in intense pain at this time, and there are others of our church family uh, that are facing uh, possible surgeries and so forth. But you just pray for each Let's pray for each other. You know, on these Sunday mornings, we're just looking at the words of Jesus. In other words, uh, if, for example, if you have a red-letter edition, then all the words of Jesus are in red, you know. And so that's basically what I'm just doing. I'm just taking the words of Jesus and addressing every subject there is in life. You know, uh, there's no subject Jesus did not address, I can assure you. Now, in a world full of lies and deception, 
We need to know the truth. We need to hear the truth. You say, well, Brother Fred, I, I'm not capable of being deceived. Well, you just got deceived. Because <laughs> you are capable of being deceived. Oh, I, I would recognize a lie. Oh, no. So what we need to do, the best, you know how they determine counterfeit money? By studying real money. They don't go study counterfeit bills. No, they study the real money. And they say this, and if you know the real money, then, then you won't have any trouble spotting the counterfeit money. Well, if you know the truth, then you won't have any trouble identifying a lie. But the problem is we have to know the truth. In John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth. He said, I'm the truth. Jesus doesn't have truth. He is truth. He said, I am the truth, and I am the life. Over in John chapter 1, it said that Jesus was full of grace and truth. I love the verses in John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32, where Jesus said, uh, then Jesus said to those Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, truth, here it is, if you abide in my word, you're my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth. Now, how am I going to know the truth? I've got to know what his word says. I've got, and praise God, all the words of Jesus that God wanted recorded are recorded. We know what he says about life and all those things. He said, if you abide in my word, you're my disciples indeed, you shall know the truth. And the truth will make you free. You know, we've already looked at Jesus, what Jesus said, the truth of Jesus about life, the truth of Jesus about death and resurrection, the truth of Jesus about heaven and about hell, then the truth of Jesus about relationships how we relate to each other, and the truth of Jesus about salvation as we had the Lord's Supper last Sunday. Now today we're going to look at the truth of Jesus, uh, uh, the, the, the truth of Jesus through two prayers that he prayed, two powerful prayers. One was his own confession to his father. The other was a prayer that he prayed for you. And as we study that in John 17 this morning, we're going to see two powerful prayers that Jesus prayed. And, and really, in this prayer, he's telling us in his confession, he's saying that this is the way you need to come to the end of your life. This is the way you need to live. And then having told his father, made his confession to the father, which really was telling us how to live. Then he prayed for us that, that, that God would keep us and that he would strengthen us and that he would help us. Now, next Sunday, I didn't realize it, but Jesus had probably as much to say about the last days. You can read Matthew 25. You can read Mark 13. Jesus had an unbelievable amount to say about the last days and about his going away and coming back. So we'll look at that on next Sunday. Well, Jesus made a great confession. Look in John 17, verse 1. And here's the first prayer. Jesus made a powerful confession 
You know what it really was? It was his own eulogy. He just said some things to the Father. He just confessed it so you and I would know it. First of all, he said in verse 1, Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven. So he's praying, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. So you know what the hour is. It was his crucifixion. It was his resurrection. He talked about his hour all the way back in the temple when he, his mother said something to him about getting lost from him and everything. He said, my hour hadn't come. At, when he, at the wedding in Cana of Galilee, his mother said some things. She said, you don't understand. My hour has not come. And Jesus, the hour for Jesus was when he would be betrayed and crucified, buried, and rise again from the dead. He lived looking and focused on his hour. And so now in John 17, he says, okay, my hour has come. And listen to what he said. Father, glorify yourself in my death and in my resurrection. You glorify yourself because my hour has come. Then he goes on and he, and he makes some confessions about life, about his life. There are two confessions that I have read, and you know both of them, that a people made about life. See, we don't want to live a wasted life. We don't want to live a life that is just wood, hay, and straw, and that just will be consumed in the presence of God. We want to live a life that is fruitful and eternal. And so it was Leonard Ravenhill who said and has on his grave marker is what you're living for worth Christ dying for. What Leonard was saying is this. You know the awful price Jesus paid for you to be saved? He said, let me ask you something. Is, is your, what you're living for really what worth the price that Jesus paid? For you to be saved? Paul understood that. And over in Corinthians, he said, the love of Christ compels me. The love of Christ compels me because I judge that if one died for all, that if Jesus died for all, then all were dead. And then he makes a statement, and those that live should no longer live for themselves. Boy, that's plain. But for Christ who loved them, and gave himself for them. You see, it's what I'm living for every day. Does it speak of the value of what Jesus Christ did for me on the cross? Is what I'm is my life today what worth what Christ died for? But here's the other one. It says only one life. That's right. We don't believe in reincarnation. It is appointed unto man once to die, and after that the judgment. It says, for me to live is Christ, and die is vain. But that, that, the statement that I love so much, that, that is made a, a, along that line, where Jesus said, 
is what you living for worth Christ dying for? And then, that was Leonard Ravenhill. Then the other one, one, other one was, you know it well, only one life. It will soon be passed. Boy, that's true, isn't it? You know, life is like, the Bible says life is like a weaver's shuttle. It just passes by. The Bible says life is like a vapor that appears for a while and then vanishes away. It seems like just no time that I was born into this world. And now, December 77 years later, where did they go? All those years. They went by so fast. It says, only one life, it will soon be passed. Only what's done through Christ will last. You say, well, Brother Fred, then the only thing that's important is, is, is if I pray and if I read my Bible and if I come to church and if I witness. No, no, no. You don't understand. Only one life it will soon be passed. Only what's done through Christ. Hey, a godly wife and mother, housewife, done through Christ. An honest businessman full of integrity, treating people with love and respect. What's done through Christ will last. You know, the Bible says, whatever you do, do it heartily to the Lord and not to men. In other words, there's no such thing as you've got, I've got my secular life. I go to work or I do this, I do that. And that's my, but, but then, there, there, then there's my life for Jesus. No, no, that's totally wrong. That is totally wrong. Whatever you do, do it heartily to the Lord. And not to men. I just happened to hear a, a little bit of this young boy was riding his bicycle. And I didn't get the details of where he was riding it from too. And, and he couldn't be over eight or nine. And, and the person I asked him is on the news in Mobile. What, 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 what led you, what, what led you uh, to, to ride your bicycle? And uh, I know he was raising money for something. He said, well, it was... Um, that verse of scripture that I just thought about it when I was sitting in the back of the car. It says, whatever you do, do it heartily to the Lord and not to men. And I knew this was something that I felt like I ought to do. And so he said, I just said, I'm going to do it. And I'm going to do it heartily for the Lord. I said, man, here's a nine-year-old boy that understands more than most people in this world understand. Okay, the first prayer of Jesus was a prayer of confession. He says three things. I want you to look at them in John 17. And I hope you can say this about your life. I pray to God when, when the journey's over. Hey, by the way, your hour is going to come. Oh, yeah. Your hour will come. There's a time to be born, and there's a time to die. There's a time to rejoice. There's a time to mourn. Over there it says, so many aspects of life. Oh, my hour is coming when I will face God. Your hour is coming. Well, so when Jesus was facing his hour, the first thing he said in John chapter, 15, John chapter 17, in verse um, 4, listen to what Jesus said. John 17, verse 4. He said, 
He's talking to the Father. I have glorified you on earth. Now, what a statement. His hours come. He was looking at the cross. He wasn't going to run from that hour. He said, what should I say in John 8, 29? Father, save me from this hour. No, for this hour I came into the world. He said, no, I don't want you to save me from this hour. This is your will. And said, so he says, I'm saying here. Father, but I want you to know one thing. I have glorified you on earth. And you know, Jesus did. Everything that he did. I love what he said in John chapter 8, verse 29 about his life. How do you glorify God on earth? By obeying him and being fruitful. In John chapter 8, verse 29, uh, Jesus said these words. He who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone. For I always do those things that please him. No wonder Jesus could say, Father, my hour's come. It's winding down. Headed to the cross. I'm rising from the dead. My earthly ministry will be over shortly. But he said, Father, I want you to know one thing. I've glorified you on earth. I said, I've glorified you on earth. He said, I always do those things that please you. That's the way you glorify God on earth. But you know, Jesus went on himself and said in the 15th chapter of John, how we glorify God. In John chapter 15, verses 8 and 9, I want you to, Jesus, we talk about glorifying God. Now, I'm praying that when your hour comes, if it's not instantly and you're gone, But if you have time to reflect, I hope you'll be able to say, Father, I didn't get it all right. I wasn't perfect. But I do know this, Lord. I glorified you on earth. Man, if you can say that, nothing else matters. I glorified you on earth. And in John 15, verses 8 and 9, listen to what Jesus said about how we glorify God. He said, Go to verse 7. If you abide in me, Jesus, let me be your life. And my words abide in you. You can ask what you desire, and it will be done for you. Now, here it is. By this, my Father is glorified. Well, I want to know what that is. I want to be able to say, I have glorified you on earth. Jesus said, let me tell you when my Father is glorified. By this, my Father is glorified when you bear much fruit. You're fruitful, and so you shall be my disciple. Now, it's the fruit of a righteous life. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's the fruit of a life yielded and surrendered to him. You're fruitful in your life. You know, Jesus talked about the servant. One had five talents. One had two. One had one, and how they were fruitful, and some weren't fruitful. He gave many parables and illustrations talking about how we should bear fruit unto God. You know, so Jesus glorified the Father because of the fruit that he bore in his life. And um, Jesus lived a fulfilled life. Look in John 15, verse 8. My Father is glorified. And then John 12, verse 27. Listen to what Jesus said about his life. In John 12, 27, 
Jesus said, now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came into the world. His life was a life of surrender. It was a life that fully pleased him. It was a life that was fruitful to him. Now, I pray that you and I will be able to make that, make that confession. That we'll say, Lord, you know, my hour's come, but I have glorified you on earth. I have glorified you on earth. Man, that's the bottom line. Glorify him at your job. Glorify him in your home. Glorify him in your social life. That means he's Lord and you're being fruitful to him. But listen to the second thing that Jesus said. It's right there again in John chapter 17, verse 4. I have finished the work that you gave me to do. Now, what about that? He said, Lord, I've not only glorified you. I've been done that which was, I always did what was fully pleasing to you. But you know, Lord, you, you, you had a work for me to do. You had a work for me. And Lord, I'm telling you, I have finished the work that you gave me to do. Man, what a statement. You know, uh, in one time, Jesus, in John chapter 9, there was a man that was born blind, and Jesus was going to heal him. And you remember what Jesus said? I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day, for the night is coming when no man can work. You say, but Brother Fred, I, you know, I, I, this is my vocation, and this is my lifestyle, and this is who I am, and this is what I do. Okay, but wait a minute. Don't, don't tell me that God does not have a work for you to do. Will. This will. And Lord, as best I know how, by the grace of God, as I come to the end of my journey, I have finished the work that you gave me to do. Oh, to be able to say that. It may be totally unnoticed by men. It may be something that seems insignificant to the world. But let me tell you something about the will of God. The will of God for your life is good, it's acceptable, it's perfect, and it's eternal. And nothing is insignificant as far as a great and mighty God is. And if you do what God has for you to do by the power of his spirit, then God is well pleased. And just remember this. The Bible says the first shall be last and many times the last shall be first. It's not by the applause or recognition of men. It's what is all the applause and recognition of heaven. I've glorified you on earth. Jesus said, I finished the work you gave me to do. And I remember on the cross when he cried, it is finished. But there was one, one other confession that he made that I hope that we would maybe be able to make. And it's in John 17, uh, verse 6. I want you to look at what it says. These are the three confessions. I have manifested your name to the men you have given me out of the world. Now, this particular part of the prayer was directed toward his disciples. And he's talking about how that one of them was going to betray him, but how he had poured his life into Peter, James, and John, and that everyone that the Father had given him to be his disciple, he was not going to lose any of them. And, uh, and, and, and he said, I have manifested your name in the earth. You know what Jesus said? My life has revealed you, O God. 
My life has revealed you. People say, what is God like? And they've been able to look in my life, Jesus said. And they get, get an understanding of what God is like. I have manifested your name. You know, while passing through this world of sin and others your life shall be view, be clean and pure without within, let others see Jesus in you. Let others see Jesus in you. Let others see Jesus in you. Listen, Jesus lived and he was able to say when his hour came, Father, I have manifested your name. People know who you are. They know your heart. They understand not the man, the world's view of God, but the view of God that's revealed by the Holy Spirit. And you know, I love what um, Jesus said in 17.6, I have manifested your name. And then down in verse 26 of chapter 17, he said the same thing. I have manifested your name. I have declared to them your name and will declare it. You ask me, Brother Fred, what is God like? What is the heart of God? I say, well, you know, we, we, we see something of what God is like in Genesis. And then we see something of the revelation of God in, in Moses and in the Exodus. And then we see something about the nature and character of God and the prophets. And we see God's love and mercy. You know, you ever wonder, does God give people a second chance? Let me tell you something about Israel. God gave them a thousand chances. They were worse than Baptists. I am telling you, they were bad. God would bless them and they'd go chase an idol. God would do something mighty and they'd forget about it in 15 minutes. But you just see, you, you, you study that Old Testament. And you just see God and you see God's love and you see God's mercy. But you see God's anger and you see God's wrath. You begin to see the whole character and nature of God. That's fine. But when Jesus came into the world, in the first chapter of John, it said, no man has seen God at any time. But get this, the only begotten who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. You're just fixing to see God. You're fixing to see the heart of God. You're fixing to see God in action in, in, in the new covenant of grace. And man, I, I remember in John 14 where Jesus had been talking about he's going to prepare a place for him in heaven. And, and Philip said uh, in the 15th chapter, uh, 14th chapter of John, verse 7, he said, listen to him. And Philip said to him, verse 8, Lord, show us the Father. We want to know what God is like. Show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. Jesus said, Philip, have I been with you so long, and you have not known me? Philip, he who has seen me has seen the Father. You've been looking at the Father as I healed the sick, raised the dead, forgave the adulterers, as I saved the lost. You've been watching God in operation. Don't you remember I told you the heart of God about the, the, the lost sheep and how they went and got him and the heart of God when they had the lost coin and they found it? 
And I show you the heart of God when the prodigal came home. And I said to you, there's joy in heaven over one sinner that repents. I mean, and how many times did I show you the compassion of God when he raised the widow of Nain's uh, uh, oldest son from the dead? And when he healed Jairus' daughter, he, he said, listen, you've seen God. And by the way, I even showed you the righteous anger of God when I overturned the tables of the money changers and drove them out of the temple. I even showed you the righteous anger of God toward religion that is lifeless when I called the scribes and Pharisees a generation of vipers and asked him how they would escape the damnation of hell. He said, I've shown you every facet. I've shown you the love of God. No, I've lived before you the love of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God, the forgiveness of God, the power of God, the compassion of God, the heart of God. Hey, Philip, you can read the Old Testament and you get one picture of God, and it's the same God. But you move over into the New Testament, and the Bible says the law was given through Moses. But grace, oh, and truth came through Jesus Christ. And so we've got to understand, Jesus was able to say, Father, I have revealed, I've manifested your name. Now, I just want to say this to you. The most important sermon a person will ever hear is the one they see in your life. If they see Christ in you, if they see you living a righteous life by the power of the Holy Spirit, if they see you living a godly life, if they see you forgiving others just as Christ has forgiven you, when they see you not living a life that is selfish and self-centered, but a life that is selfless and self-giving, when they look at you and say, no, you don't act like the world, you don't live like the world, you don't march at the orders of the world, you, you know, you, you're different. What is, well, it's Christ. It's Christ in me. It's Christ in you. Listen, the greatest witness you could ever do is to live a righteous and a godly life. The life let Christ live through before your children. Let Christ live through you before your wife or husband. Let Christ live through you before people at work. Just let others. The greatest thing they could say to you is, you know, you're not the person you used to be. You're different. Something happened to you. You've been changed. Yeah. What is it? Oh, it's Christ who's come to live in me. It's not my love. It's his love. It's not my forgiveness. It's his forgiveness. It's not my power, it's his power. It's not me overcoming the world, the flesh, and the devil. It's Christ in me. Hey, listen, under God, if everybody in this room could say, Father, I have glorified you on earth. Father, I have finished the work that you gave me to do. And, oh, Father, I have manifested your name. People have been able to see Christ in me. You know, don't ever underestimate how much influence you have on your children. Because they're watching you. You can tell them you love God, but they'll, they, they're looking at you. You can tell them that the Bible's important, but they're looking at you. You know, let me tell you something. Seem like children are so much smarter than they used to be. Have you ever noticed? I don't know what it is. They, they seem like some of them are just too smart. But, buddy, I promise you one thing. If Jesus is real to you, there's a good chance they're going to be real to your children. If Jesus is real to you, it's going to be a good chance he's good to, 
going to be real to the people at work. And if he's real to you, he's going to be a good example. He's going to be real to the people that you associate with, your relatives and friends. Well, then I want to show you the last prayer. That was a prayer of confession, and may that be our prayer. But look at the last one. This is where Jesus prayed for us. Turn over to John chapter 17, verse 11 and 12. He said, Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father. He talks about keep through your name those I have given to you. But in verse 20, this is where he says he prays for us. Now look at this. He just made his confession. Now he says, but I'm praying for you. He, he told the disciples in those first verses he was praying for them. But now look what he said about us. I do not pray for these alone, Peter, James, and John. But also for those who will believe in me through their word. Well, that's you. That's me. We believe in Jesus because of what John recorded in the Gospel of John. Because of what Matthew recorded in the book of Matthew. What James recorded. Hey, the gospel was preached by those 11 disciples and then the 12th when he was appointed apostles. The gospel was preached. It went throughout the earth and it's still going throughout the earth. The same gospel preached in the New Testament is preached today. And you know, we are believers today because of the faithful witness of 12 men who absolutely told the truth about God. I pray for them who believed on you through their word. And then he prayed, let me tell you what he prayed for us. He says, I'm not praying. In verse 20, I do not pray for these disciples alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Okay. And this is what he prayed for us. First of all, He prayed uh, a prayer that he was going to keep us. That's important. It's not you down here holding on to Jesus. When Christ comes into your life, man, you're, you're safe in the arms of the living God. And he said in John 17, 11 and 12, he said, Now I'm no longer in the world, but these are in the world. Holy Father, I come to you. Keep through your name. Keep through your name those that I have given to you. John 10, 27 through 30. Don't you love what Jesus said? I'm, I'm, I'm praying that you'd keep them, Father. And, and in John 10, 27 through 30, we love these verses, but they're so true. John 10, 27 through 30, Jesus said about keeping us. He said, verse 27, my sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. Neither shall anyone take them out of my hand. Boy, that's pretty safe. My father who gave them me is greater than all. And no one is able to take them out of my father's hand. Wow. I and my father are one. When the Japanese were invading China, when Miss Bertha Smith was there, and that she heard the guns and they got closer and closer. And Miss Bertha got under the bed. And the Holy Spirit said to her, what are you doing under the bed? Get out from under that bed. She said, I'm, you and, she, 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 she said, he said, listen, 
you're in Jesus' hand, and you're in the Father's hand, and for one of those Japanese bullets to touch you, they got to go through the Father and the Son. So you just get up, and you face them when they come in. And guess what? She got up, and she faced them. Let me tell you something. Jesus Christ did not save you and then walk away to leave you to live on your own on this earth. Who Jesus saves, Jesus keeps. Who Jesus saves, Jesus comes to live inside of us. And he's alive in us. And we're never anywhere where Jesus is not in us in the person of the Holy Spirit. And so it's just not a matter, God, I'm going to try my best to hold on to you now that I'm saved. God says, hey, you just remember that. You, you, you can, but I'm holding on to you. Boy, I love that verse over in um, 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. It's a great message of hope. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy, 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5, has given us a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that fades not away. Now listen, reserved for you in heaven who are kept by the power of God. Wow. We're kept by God's power. We may stumble, we may fall, we may get knocked down. But I'll tell you one thing, Jesus never leaves us nor forsakes us. And he who saved us is faithful to us. And he says, I'm going to keep you by the power of Almighty God. So Jesus prayed about keeping us. And then he, he prayed another thing. Look at John 17, 15. Boy, do you and I need this. <laughs> wow. John 17, 15, he said. Father, keep them. I do not pray, in verse 15, that you should take them out of the world. But I pray that you would keep them from the evil one. Jesus said, Lord, I want you to keep them from the devil and all the demons of hell that, he, that are under his command. Listen, Jesus prayed that the Father would keep us from the evil one. He prayed and said, I'm going to keep you in my hand, but I'm going to pray the Father will keep you from the evil one. You know, that's why, that's why he put that in the Lord's Prayer. The more we learn how to pray, lead us not to, into temptation, but deliver us, and the word there is not from evil. It says deliver us from the evil one. And so we don't battle against flesh and blood but against principalities and powers and the rulers of the darkness of this world. There's no way to explain the wickedness in the hearts of men apart from the fact that the enemy, Satan, and his demonic spirits appeal to all that is in them that is ungodly and not right, and they do weird and awful and horrendous things. Why? Because of the evil one. But Jesus said, I will pray for you. I'm going to pray that, you'll be, that Father will keep you, but I'm going to pray that he keep you from the evil one. And then he said, uh, I'm going to pray that you'll grow up as a Christian. Look at John 17, 17. He said, I'm going to pray that you won't remain a spiritual baby. I'm going to pray that you'll grow up. He says in verse 17, sanctify them through thy truth. Lord, you take the word of God and you set them apart. You... You set them apart, you make them different, you make them holy, 
your word will cleanse them and wash them. And Lord, I'm praying that through the word of God, you will mature them. And they won't remain spiritual babies. He said, sanctify them through thy, by your truth. You see, it's truth that helps us to grow in Christ. Not lies, truth. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And so, man, listen, the more you know about this word, the more you know about God and about Jesus and about this world and what God is up to, but also this word washes you. This word is used to cleanse you. This word is used to teach you. The psalmist said, your word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. Jesus said, Father, I want to pray for these people. Lord, take your word and set them apart. Take your word and make them holy. Take your word and help them to grow up to be mature followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. No longer blown about by every wind of doctrine. Lord, sanctify them through thy truth. Your word is truth. And then there's one final thing he prayed for us. He prayed that we would be one. Look at John 17, verse 20. Boy, this really spoke to me. I do not pray for these alone, but for those who will believe in you through my word, through their word. Now get this, that they may all be one. That will be of one heart, one mind, and one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and in you, through you, in, in you all. Father, that they may be, all be one, as you, Father, are in me. Jesus and the Father are one, and I in you. Here it is, that they may be one in us. Father, that they'll find their unity in us as they are in Christ and Christ is in them. That just as you and I are united and are one, God, I'm praying that they will be one. They won't be divided. No, but they'll be one in Christ. He said, and let me tell you why. That they may be all be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they may also be one in us. That the world may believe that you sent me. Father, when they see these people loving each other, serving each other, caring for each other, bearing each other's burdens, ministering to each other, loving each other, when they see them united, you know what? They're going to say, you know, Jesus is real. God did send him. Look, look at that church. They love each other. They pray for each other. They don't judge each other. They don't condemn each other. When somebody gets knocked down, they help pick them up. I'm telling you, he said, they're going to believe in me when they see that they are one just like you, Father, and I am one. Listen, I've been a Baptist too long. I tell you, nothing makes me more angry than to hear about churches that are having fights. Boy, I tell you what, that just glorifies the devil. You know, they get to arguing about the most insignificant things. In the world. It's just a bunch of lost church members who don't know God and don't love each other, and they give Jesus a bad reputation by the way they act in the house of God. It's ridiculous. Listen, we've got the love of Christ. We always won't agree on everything, and we always not won't believe exactly about everything, but I'll tell you the things that are Christian, we will. But I'm telling you, friend, you can forget saying 
that Jesus is in this place if we don't love each other and are not one with each other. And you, in these other churches where they're fussing and fighting and the deacons are trying to control everything and are there's one or two families that are in control, listen, they just bring, they bring shame to the name of Jesus Christ. You say, why are you so, so upset about it? Because I see too much of it. I had a guy tell me that, a preacher tell me, tell a friend of mine, said, you know, um, I think he only had three deacons. He said, my deacons told me I couldn't preach more than 15 minutes. I said, give me a break. Who are they to tell a man of God what he can preach and how long he can preach? Come on. Now, if y'all get to fussing and quarreling, I'll see you later. I ain't going to be no part of it. Because I tell you, the name of Jesus is more important than what you think is important. It's Jesus that's important. It's his glory that's important. And it's, his, and, and it's his honor that's important. That's what's important. It's Jesus. It's not you and it's not me. Well, Brother Fred, you, you're preaching like we've got problems in this church. We have me. No, listen, of all the churches I've ever pastored, this is the most loving, most unified body of believers I've ever been a part of. I'm telling you, it's like heaven on earth. It is. It's wonderful. It is wonderful. It's wonderful. I'm telling you, it's wonderful. You said that, Brother Phil, Cottage Hill, you, you were there 25 years, yeah? And it was a wonderful church, a loving church, but we were always fighting some kind of battle. And then toward the end, a few people got to being ugly. And, you know, I said to myself, after all these years of preaching the Word of God, here a few people just get, it wasn't about 15, but it's just enough to aggravate you. You know what I mean? I guess it was the thorn in your flesh. You know what I mean? But I'm just, I tell you, God's, God, God created the unity in this church. God's going to keep the unity in this church. And we're going to love each other. And if there's a problem, we're going to work it out. Amen? We're not going to go, amen. We're not going to talk about each other. We don't talk about each other and we don't talk about the problems. We talk to Jesus and then we talk to each other. That's the way God church operates. Listen, Peter and Paul uh, had a uh, falling out. But guess what? They got together and met and Paul won. But I'm I'm just telling you. (laughs) See, Peter thought he knew more than anybody else anyway. Well, I had not planned on saying all that, but I am glad I did. And if you know a pastor that's going through a hard time, got a difficult church where they're being mean to him, and they don't love each other, and they just fighting each other, you do not know the pastors I talk to over and over again call me with a broken heart and a broken heart. Brother Fred, this and that and the other and all this stuff. And it just grieves me so because it's not like Jesus. It's just not like Jesus. Jesus.